Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Good evening everyone. Amen. It's great to be together again. And uh, we know that God's presence is here. And we don't say that out of routine. We really sincerely mean that we sense the fact that He is with us. Emmanuel, God is, is with us. And uh, we know that He is here. And I want to encourage you. We have been stressing right through this weekend to develop a sense of intimacy with Father. Amen. Um, that's why we've sung some of these songs relative to the Father. John 4.24 says that the Father seeks true worshippers that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. True worship is always sought by the Father, to the Father. And um, it's fine to be related to your spiritual oversight as a spiritual father in the Lord. Paul said to the Corinthians that he became their father. 1 Corinthians 4, 15 and 16, I became your father through the gospel you were begotten. You might have many teachers, but I am your, I am your father. Ephesians 6, I think, also says, Honor your father and your mother, where? In the Lord, right? Many people have domesticated that scripture to honoring biological parents, which is true because it's part of the Ten Commandments. You must honor your father and your, and your mother. But a key phrase to understanding that scripture is in the Lord. Everyone say in the Lord. So it says, honor your father, Ephesians, honor your father and mother in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 4, 15 and 16, uh, Paul would say, I became your father where? In the Lord. Right? So it's in the Lord indicates to us the spiritual dynamic relative to spiritual parentage. Right? We all have physical parents, but we all also need to relate to our spiritual oversight as spiritual fathers. But in relating to a man as a spiritual father, the ultimate goal is to get you to greater sense of intimacy with him, the heavenly father. We said that relationship, spiritual parentage, is really to get you to a place of intimacy with the Divine Father. Amen? The one is a means to end. The one is a means to an end. We laid solid foundation through multiple scriptures from Friday evening and in the two sessions we had today. Thursday evening as well. When did we start? Thursday evening. What's today? Saturday. Thursday evening, Friday evening, and then two sessions this morning and now so this is our fifth session, I think. We painstakingly laid scriptural foundation for some of the things that we have been teaching. As a case study, we've been looking at the book of Ruth, which models for us true fathering and true sonship. In the persons of 
Naomi the spiritual father and Ruth the spiritual son. I said to you when you read that narrative, it's not about a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. It's about a spiritual father and a spiritual son. The clue is given to us in Ruth 4.15, where Ruth is described as better than seven, better than seven sons. It costs Ruth in the role of son, automatically depicting Naomi then in the role of father. Boaz is a depiction of Christ. Boaz, whom Ruth would marry through Naomi's counsel. Naomi would guide and instruct Ruth about to not to leave Boaz's field, to glean and stay only in, in that field. Every single one of Naomi's instructions to Ruth was that she would move progressively to a place of intimacy, ultimately marriage, with Boaz, and that union would produce a child called Obed, who would become the father of Jesse, who would become the father of King David, from whom Jesus, the line of the tribe of Judah's line, would emerge. So you got to see this domestic story in terms of its macro intents. In terms of the result that God desires to generate. Everything that we've taught today and yesterday and from Thursday onwards uh, uh, has been, it must be viewed with the intent of what will this ultimately accomplish? Not only for its immediacy, but for the long-term future, even for time beyond your natural life. My private obedience now has bearing not only for my nowness, but it has ramifications for my children and even for the state of affairs way beyond my physical life. Right? Ruth's obedience to Naomi has positive ramifications, not just for her immediate world, but it has positive spin-offs. It prepares a context really, for the coming forth of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, and ultimately then, the birthing of the New Testament Church. What you do now has ripple effects far beyond you. Hence, the requirement to be obedient, to be righteous, and to observe principles very, very, very seriously. If you are short-sighted, if you, if you go through life, just for the year and now. There are sometimes you will not give yourself to daring acts of obedience because you are too into self-preservation, self-protection, me, myself, and I. Hmm? But you have to think outside of yourself. And I want to encourage you. Uh, this narrative teaches us this. If time would permit, I will get to demonstrating to you how daringly courageous Ruth's obedience is. It's in fact an obedience to the point of death. Like Jesus died on the cross, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Ruth's obedience is to the point of, of death. Right? But before we get there, this morning we said, um, we, we taught you that it is very important to see your spiritual father. If you don't perceive that the man leading you is your spiritual father, you won't receive the grace of God attendant with him. 
perception is before or before you can receive the grace you need to perceive the grace so you can't receive that which you don't perceive perception is for reception so if i see within a man i perceive the grace of father in him to preach the word to me to teach the word to guide and counsel my life to bring me to a place of intimacy with christ that that union will produce something in the earth if i fail to perceive that i fail to receive the grace attendant with that and i will not then get the attendant reward it's perception reception reward grace that you cannot perceive you will not receive right if i take this reference on galatians 2 uh, I don't have it on, on my slides, but it's Galatians 2, I think, verse 8 and 9. It says this. Paul went down to the province of Galatia. Right? Now, who was Paul before he was Paul? What did Saul do? Right? He persecuted the church. He killed Christians, basically, for a living. Right? The Lord converts him on the Damascus road, and he gives, surrenders his life to the Lord. And this powerful, powerful conversion. God calls him as a mighty apostle. He who once persecuted the church is now going to become one of the greatest proponents of the church. God alters the course of his life and destiny. The sad reality is that the modern day church, much of the modern day church, after his conversion, did not readily accept his apostleship. Why must we accept this man as an apostle when his reputation is before he persecuted the church? He did not just persecute the church. He was leading the persecution of the church. Right? If Paul were alive today, he would probably be the leader of ISIS in his soul days. He was forefront at the, at, at, at the persecution of the church. Now the man surrenders his life to the Lord. How would you like it if I say to you, the leader of the greatest movement persecuting the church has just been saved. He's visiting us next at church. He's coming to, to, to fellowship here. Can you, can you sense the early church's reluctance to embrace not just the fact that he's serving the Lord, but that he's claiming to be an apostle of Christ. So there was this reluctance. Barnabas was one of the first few individuals that embraced him and his calling. Barnabas then would take him and introduce him to the other apostles, paving the way for his acceptance. Paul writes to the church at Galatia, all the churches in the province of Galatia, in the book of Galatians as we know it. And he writes this to them. He says, when Barnabas and I came to you, you perceived, everyone say perceived. He said, you perceived the grace of God in me or in us, and you extended unto us the right hand of fellowship. Right? So, they did not count his historical reputation against him. But they trained their senses to see beyond the history of a man, to behold the grace content in the man, that which they perceived, they reached out to to have fellowship. They received. Otherwise, the grace of God in Paul as an apostle would not have benefited the church at Galatia. Right? 
And so I want to encourage you, when you meet anybody for that matter, don't regard their race, regard their grace. Don't perceive the man after the flesh, but train your senses to discern the grace of God in the man. Otherwise, it will prevent your opening your heart and partnering with that, with that grace dynamic that we design, is designed to benefit you. Amen? Now, and we, we went through a whole lot of other examples this morning. And I thought this afternoon, just to give you one more to demonstrate, to demonstrate the principle. Galatians, or rather Genesis 49 and verses 1 and 2. Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourself that I might tell you what will befall you in the days to, to come. Okay? Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to who? Listen to Israel, your father. Israel and Jacob are the same person. Remember, the word Jacob means deceiver, uh, conniver, negotiator. He's got a shrewd fellow, this Jacob. He likes to wheel and deal. Deceiver, conniver. Remember? Remember after he wrestled with the angel at Peniel? His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. When the man's nature changed, his name changed. The word Israel means one who prevails or one who has power or authority with God. So his name is altered. But it's the same man. How many sons did he have? There's 12 sons of Jacob. Not so? Abram, Isaac, Jacob, then the 12 sons. He, by Genesis 49, he's aged and he's about to die. Right? I think he dies at the end of the chapter, in fact. He's about to exit this life. And so, it's a pretty long chapter, Genesis 49. What happens is, he calls his sons to a meeting, realizing his imminent death. And he prophesies over their lives. Each one gets a prophecy. In prophesying, he's not only revealing what would befall them, but he's configuring their destiny by his prophetic utterances. For them to receive his word, he uses these phrases. Says, what does he say to them? Now, can you ignore summons? If you do, try it. Try it. From the law, if you do, you land up in trouble. Okay? So, when I read this, Jacob, it's not just guys when you come to a meeting. Hey, you are summoned here. You better pitch up, right? So he summons his, the sons. Everyone say sons. So he's the father. They are sons. Now when you read the scriptures, for example, our theme this week was spiritual fathering and sonship. When we read passages like this, in there are principles governing fathers and, and sons. So a father sometimes, when he senses the serious need to deliver uh, critical prophetic mandates to his sons will call them to a meeting. The gathering of the saints for me is not optional. The gathering of the saints for me is a summoning to hear the word of the Lord. Right? I'm amazed that our people leave meetings to watch sport games. 
I'm amazed when a sporting event eclipses the priority of the word of the Lord. I have news for you. Soccer will pass away. Cricket will pass away. And rugby, particularly rugby, will pass away. (laughs) But the word of the Lord endures for? Forever and ever. Amen. So there was the summoning to hear the word of the Lord in and through the father to his, to his sons. And so it says, Jacob summoned his sons, and he says, assemble yourselves so that I might tell you what will befall you in the last days, or in the days to come. But gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, but listen to who? Israel your Listen to Israel, your father. Jacob summonses, but Israel speaks. If you hold his Jacobness against him, his connivingness, his nature after his former position, you might not come because you're still perceiving of him in terms of his historical failure. Hmm? Jacob summonses, but when he speaks, he doesn't speak as Jacob. He speaks as the Israel of God. He speaks as one who has power and authority with God. Let me just say this. No spiritual father is completely perfect. There might be still some freckles and frikies. (laughs) Some unsavory things in his demeanor, his posture, his manner of operation, or his... But let me say, if God has positioned the man over your life as your spiritual oversight, when you gather to hear the word, do not regard the Jacob elements, but amplify the Israel elements in the man. When he speaks, he speaks as the authority of God to you. Amen? You know, by this time he's a reformed man. By this time he's a... He's a changed man. In fact, he's half blind here. But he's going to prophesy accurately, being able to see in the days to come for each of the, of the tribes. As so I want to encourage you, you must cherish especially a spiritual father who has gone through the processing of the Lord. And he's now come to this place where yes, he might have a Jacob history, but he's now the Israel of God. Amen? So don't hold Justin's Jacob history against him. (laughs) When he speaks, he speaks as the Israel of God. But if your perception is still of him after the flesh, the grace vested in him will not benefit you. Amen? So Jacob summons us, but Israel would speak. When Ruth connects to Naomi... There's nothing in Naomi's natural life that is appealing to encourage her to connect. Because by all accounts, she lost her husband. She lost two sons, one of whom was Ruth's husband. She's completely barren, too old to have another child. She's in fact a bitter woman. She said, change my name to to Mara. Don't call me good, pleasant, agreeable, which is what the name Naomi means. 
Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me good. Don't call me good. Don't call me agreeable. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter martyr because the hand of the Lord has dealt harshly with me. But you know what? This girl, Ruth, what does she? She looks not at the physical condition of Naomi. She sees the resident, latent, fathering, spiritual grace vested within her. The Bible says she clung unto her. She makes a commitment to, to follow her. Orpah, the other sister-in-law, chose to go back to Moab and its gods. And I said to you this morning, she makes a spiritual decision because it was Moab and its gods. But Ruth said to Naomi, your God will be my God. So there was a spiritual decision being, being, being made here. What does Moab mean again? What father? Who needs a father? To go to an environment that denies the need for fathering. What does Ruth mean? Okay, Ruth, the meaning of Ruth is something worth seeing. What else? One who sees? Vision, sight. Does Ruth have vision? Can Ruth see beyond the natural? Yes. In fact, she's something worth seeing because she can. She looks at Naomi, not in the flesh, and she, she, she taps into the grace content of God vested in this woman. And in her heart, she knows that while there's nothing in your world right now that's going to advantage me on a natural level, I can see in the Spirit in you that I need to connect with you because my entire future is dependent upon this connection. Upon this connection. Please, you must remember, I said a major theme of this book is what? Redemption. Redeem, redeemer, redemption. That concept occurs 20 times in the book of Ruth in four chapters. Her life changes for? Forever. She goes from a, 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 a widow. What? Is it a widow? Widow. A widow to being married. She's a widow in chapter 1. She's married in chapter 4. She's barren in chapter 1. She has a boy in chapter 4. Do you know how long were they in Moab at least? In chapter 1 it tells us. At least 10 years. And you know, in 10 years being married, she could not fall pregnant. If you're living in a land called Moab, which means what? Father. Who needs a father? If you're living in a context that decries or disesteems the aspect of spiritual fathering, it causes barrenness. That's why verse 1 of chapter 1 is when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land. Wherever you have no spiritual fathering, you always have abortion, you have famine, you have the inability to conceive. Right? The moment she changes environment, a womb is open. For some of you, you need to change your mentality to open up your womb. Right? The moment you start apprising and honoring and respecting spiritual fathering, it will unlock productive potential in you. Guarantee you. Do you remember Jesus when he was still yet unborn in Mary's womb? 
Joseph and her were engaged, remember? After Joseph finally accepted that this is the will of the Lord, being convinced by an angel, an angel came to Joseph to tell Joseph to take the babe. Um, rather, it was, a sen- it was a decree, rather, by Caesar Augustus. Remember? In that time, Caesar Augustus passed a regulation instituting a population census. So there was movement of people all over Israel. In that day, conduct the census, you literally physically had to go to your, your birth town. Or the town in which your tribal allotment was. Joseph was from the tribe of Judah. He was Bethlehem. So Joseph had to literally make a journey, treacherous journey, with this pregnant Mary, with Jesus, to go to Bethlehem to be counted in his father's house, it says. Everyone say the father's house. To be counted in his father's house. But all of that took place, the Bible says, so that it would be fulfilled that the babe had to be born in Bethlehem. God works sometimes politically to bring a spiritual result. Right? So there was a political population census, a, a, a political decision taken to, to get people to move simply so that it would be fulfilled and the babe would be born in, in Bethlehem. The, my point is, Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judah. But the moment they came into that environment, the baby was born. The moment Joseph connects to his fathering environment, the baby issues forth. You can be pregnant with so much, but nothing will come forth until you find your father's house. You are latent with so much spiritual potential. You have gifts and callings that need to issue forth and need to come to a place of birthing. Under the fathering environment, that's the ideal context for your gifts, talents, abilities, and the destiny that God has for you to come not only to birth, but to full maturation. Amen? That happens. Jacob summonses the sons, but Israel speaks. I want to encourage you again. Turn to recognize who your father is in the Lord. Acknowledge that person. Support that person. Obey the word that that person brings. Because that word is designed to dispense grace to you. As you obey, the things that God has earmarked you for will surely be birthed in this season. This is a season where prophecies are coming to pass. And I prophesy to you that if this house, this corporate house, I know you have the, the father-son wineskin. I see the way I've met some of you and how you honor your spiritual parents in the Lord. And that is commendable. But this conference this week, I really believe, is designed that that principle be entrenched, be consolidated. That those on the fringes of this buy into it wholeheartedly. And you will see God break curses. God break barrenness. God break the lack of productivity in any respect. Remember this morning we said, how does the Old Testament close? I will send the spirit of 
Elijah. Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6. I will send the spirit of Elijah. And he will do what? Turn. Everyone say turn. He turns the hearts of fathers to sons and sons to fathers. This connection between fathering and sonship. And he says, so that I will not come and strike the earth with a curse. The curse is broken when fathers and sons connect. The famine is abated when fathers and sons connect. Ruth is a widow in Ruth chapter 1. By Ruth chapter 4, she is married. She is barren in Ruth chapter 1. By Ruth chapter 4, she is pregnant and bears forth a a son. She has come to poverty in Ruth chapter 1 and chapter 2. She's a virtual pauper. So is Naomi. And they're literally begging for grain in fields. By Ruth chapter 4, she's the owner of the field that she once begged in. She comes to great restoration. Not so? And I want to encourage you. But in Ruth chapter 1, initially before she's married to Chilion or Marlon, she's serving the God of the Moabites, the deity called Chemosh. By Ruth chapter 4, she's serving the God of Israel. Your God will be my God. Her only sphere of creations in Ruth chapter 1 are Moabites. But by Ruth chapter 4, Naomi's people are her people. Her whole sphere of relationships has now increased and grown. Let me just say this to you. I really believe this congregation has opened up your doors to an influence of relationships that's going to benefit you and bless you. I really believe that. Thank God for Justin's sensitivity. Even in opening doors like this for us to come, we're just but a small indication of a great blessing that is awaiting this house. You are blessed people. You really are. And I want to encourage you your sphere of associations and relationships is about to broaden. You're going to be coming to a place of richness in every single way. Amen? Your life is about to be altered forever. You're going to know a rich place in God more than you've ever known before. Amen? Here are some characteristics that makes Ruth better than seven sons. I'm not going to teach all of this simply because of time. In fact, I realize uh, you pop- I taught the book of Ruth over nine months back home. <laughs> you can't do now. You can't do justice to this in a weekend. Okay, so um, I'm going to give you just we're just throwing things out, and I can't adequately demonstrate some of the statements I'm making from the book, from the scriptures. But I just need to make them to leave a witness in the atmosphere over you. She's better than seven sons. When Ruth comes to churches, like eight people walk through the door. (laughs) Because she's better than seven. She's eight or more. She's the ideal model of perfected sonship. Seven denotes perfection. This girl represents a son who has perfected a sonship in God. She's somebody worth seeing because she can see what a spiritual father represents. Now, some aspects that make it better than seven are the following. Her mirroring of Naomi's spirit and character. I'll talk more to this if time permits. 
It's amazing how Ruth copies Naomi's disposition in the spirit. Right? And you'll see this in a moment. Her deep covenant commitment to Naomi. She said to her, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you lodge, there I will lodge. Where you die, there I will die. And there I will be buried. It's amazing how covenants today are so fleeting. Right? The people break truce so easily. The Bible says, in the last days men shall be truce breakers, covenant breakers. Loyalties change like people change their clothes today. You're loyal and committed to one person, and then we meet you next year, and you have another spiritual father. You can't be changing spiritual fathers like you change your clothes. <laughs> you know what Naomi said? Until death, I will always be loyal to you. If, you know what? And if, if the spiritual father maintains his rightness in God, maintains his credibility, maintains his purity, and he's, and he's always in sync with God's presence speaking, there should be no reason to leave him. Right? I'll discuss, if time would permit tomorrow, some unique cases where one will have to sort of alter one's spiritual parents in the Lord. That's not out of anything ugly. It's for other, other reasons the Bible speaks about. But those are far and few between. Ruth is deeply covenantally committed Everyone say covenant commitment. I want to encourage you. Uh, when, this, when this hit my spirit, I expressed this to my spiritual father in the Lord. I believe every son should come to this place where it's voiced. Ruth said it to Naomi. I will cling to you. Your God is my God. Your people, your friends are my friends. Where you lodge, I will track your journey. I will track your migration. Walk closely. Follow Elijah closely. I will track you. Where you dwell, I will dwell. Where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, there will I be buried. She said. Now that's serious, eh? That's serious. But it tells me of the serious nature of the father-son commitment. Amen? Not fleeting, but very, very, very intense. Then, the completeness and the quickness of obedience, I'll talk about that tonight, to every single one of Naomi's and Boaz's instructions. This girl quickly obeys. Every time there's an instruction in the book of Ruth to her, have you noticed? Next verse says, and she arose and she obeyed. She doesn't doubt or question the authority of the ones who speak to her. This instant reflexive obedience to the commands of God. And I want to encourage you to develop that strongly in your life. Her rapid migration from secondary illumination to primary illumination. You see, Naomi is a spiritual father, and you'll always need your spiritual father to illuminate you, teach you, guide you. But his guidance... The teaching of your spiritual father through the word is so that you will ultimately grow and mature in Christ so that you personally can be instructed from Christ himself. That does not displace the need for the spiritual father. 
But it's, he's de- his whole intent is designed to get you to a place of maturity in Christ where you'll be able to access the word of the Lord for yourself. Amen? Again, not displacing him, but it is, his whole intent is designed to get you to that place of maturity in him. I like this. The power of a personal responsibility and a private preparation. Remember, I think it's in Ruth chapter 3. What did Naomi say to her? You've read the book, not so? (laughs) Naomi said to her, wash yourself. Anoint yourself. Go down the threshing floor. Mark the place where Boaz lies on the threshing floor. Uncover his feet and lie down there. Six specific instructions that she had to obey. And that's and we can decode and explain each one at length. Time won't permit for that. But for me, that spoke to a personal commitment to personal purity and private preparation that she embarked upon as a son. Okay? That for me is a very commendable thing. Her willingness to sacrifice her own ambition in preference to pursue a another's. I'll explain that shortly. A capacity to give birth to a structure or wineskin in which God's purposes could have been contained and facilitated. Basically, she gave birth to Obed, who gave birth to Jesse, would have given birth to one of Israel's greatest kings. Her birthing of a boy is not just a birthing of a boy. A birthing of a boy is the birthing of a structure in the nation through whom God could have worked. The kingship, the monarchy vested in David. Okay? So this woman is quite a woman, Ruth. (laughs) What was Boaz before Ruth? Ruthless. (laughs) No revelation there. Okay? He was without Ruth. He was ruthless. (laughs) Okay? Now, let's have a look at something. I put this little diagram together. This is from a previous study of mine. But uh, I just want to talk about something. The economy of spiritual fathering and sonship is vital for the constitution of the house of God or the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not an institution. It's a family based upon the principle of spiritual fathering and and sonship. In that economy, brotherhood will be encouraged. 1 Peter 1.17 says, Love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. And so this idea of brotherhood within the congregation of the saints of God is very important to maintain the family characteristic of the house. Just nudge your neighbor and say, we're all brothers. We're all brothers. But brothers in the family of God need fatherly oversight. Not so? Need fatherly oversight. The older brother was the greatest hindrance to the prodigal son's return to his father's estate. Say it again. The older brother was the greatest hindrance to the prodigal son's return to his father's estate. The father was always willing to receive him back and embrace him, but the older brother kicked up a fuss. In a house, everyone say a house. 
in a house, you always need fatherly perspective over brothers to sort disagreements out. Right? If brothers left to themselves outside of fatherly oversight, probably be chaos. Right? You need a father's perspective to bring the house to order. The ultimate would be if, if every son in the house adopts a fatherly perspective of their brother. then love will be the order of the day. Amen? And the purposes of the Lord will run um, swiftly in that context. Now, so let's say we have three churches with fathers and sons. And there's this love even amongst different households. Do you know that so long as the church, various churches, are inaccurately constituted, there can never ever be oneness? Each church has got to be properly comp- uh, comprised, constituted, in the order of fathers and sons. Because it's fathers that will bring households together. We will relate as in a highly relational dynamic. I see this working in our clan, families, different churches we call families, and how we relate together. That is not politically orchestrated. It's not even legal. It's not even an organizational requirement. It's a feature of the heart. Where we connect as family, even across churches. Let me prophesy to you what I see in the spirit about this house. This house is going to become a standard of this. God wants this house to develop the family ethos so powerfully in your midst. In time to come, other houses in this port will be raised up. The fathers of those households will start to connect. And the church in this town will start to forge a oneness in the spirit. Oneness apart from the family ethos in each house is virtually impossible. Denominationalism is probably one of the greatest ills that separates and divides the church of God globally. God is changing that order. God is cha- I prophesy to the atmosphere as a witness in this town that there will come a standard raised up as the first indication of a restorative move of God to get the church in Port Alfred to function as one. Amen? Amen? And you know, given your history, this local church's history, you're going to be the first, the quickest to forgive. The quickest to extract bitterness, any remnant of bitterness from you. You're going to model to the city what the love of the Father is all about. Amen? And you'll be a standard in this regard. I really believe that. Do you receive this? I really believe this. Amen? The family of God in the earth today. Okay, uh, this is this diagram. We can talk the whole day about it. Let me get to where I really want to go. Everyone say fathers are foundational. In Genesis 17, verses 4 to 6, says the following. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. This is God to Abram speaking. Is with you and you will be a father of a multitude of nations. 
No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Now remember we said this morning, the name Abram means what? Exalted Father. The name Abraham means Father of a multitude. Right? Unless you exalt the principle of fathering in a man, accentuate it, that principle can never ever find lateral expression. Hmm? That is why in this conference, what are we doing? In the spirit, we are installing this principle as a key pig. This weekend, we are installing this principle of fathering as one of the main facets in the life of this church. Unless you exalt the principle, the principle will not father multitudes. So Abram is exalted father before he's father of a, of a multitude. I pray that no one has a Moabite mindset now, by now. Right? You don't think what father? Who needs a father? Right? By now you should be saying, we must accentuate, amplify, and consolidate the fathering principle among us. Amen? Yes, we will honor our spiritual father. But please remember, keep saying this. This is not an attempt to deify spiritual fathers. Your ultimate goal is to get intimate with the heavenly father. So we bring the principle of fathering as an emphasis in our relationship with the heavenly father. But we realize that the economy of spiritual fathering is a vital necessity to get to that end. Ruth will never ever even meet Boaz without Naomi. Naomi is critical to the process. You can't discount the means simply to jump to the end. The means will get you to the end. But don't glorify the means without getting to the end. Amen? Spiritual fathering is designed to amplify divine fathering. Amen? Now, God says to Abram, For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you, I will make nations of you. Kings will come forth from you. It is interesting, God says to Abram, I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. Everyone say fathers are made. The calling of a father is from God himself. No man can just decide, I want to be a spiritual father. In fact, let me advise you, if you're not called to this, don't dare venture there. It is not for the faint-hearted. If you're not called to this, don't assume it. If God has not graced you for it, stay far away from it. Be the best son you could ever be. Amen? But to manage the souls of men, to guide people and counsel them, to form Christ in them, has got to be a work of God in and through you as the Father. If you're not called to it, it's not your destiny, it's not your grazing, stay away from it. Amen? God says to Abraham, I have made you a father. It's the work of God. It's not the work of men. The word make or made is the Hebrew term nathan. And it literally means to give, to place, or to set for function, to constitute. 
And I like this meaning. It means, oops, let me just get back to this. Okay, let's continue. Everyone say, set for function. So, it means to give, to set. It implies setting as a foundation. Right? As a foundation. Now, Paul comments on Genesis. In Romans chapter 4, he comments on what God is saying to Abraham and he writes, as it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you in the presence of him who believed, even God gives lives to the dead and call into being those things which do not exist. In the Hebrew, rather in the Greek New Testament, the word made, similar to the Hebrew Nathan, in the Greek it's titemai. Everyone say titemai. Hope it's not Greek to you. <laughs> I hope you've learned a lot of Greek concepts and Hebrew concepts since we started. But it means similarly to Nathan, to set to a point, to set in place, to put in place, and to lay as I found. Now that's why I say, fathers are foundational. Because when God said to Abraham, I have made you a father, what does God say to him? I will make you as a foundation. What do foundations do? They hold up structures. Do you see foundations? If you see foundations, run out of the house. The foundations should not be seen. <laughs> right? I often think of Joseph and Jesus. Joseph is Jesus' spiritual father in a sense. And he guides the boy and he instructs him. Especially from 12 years old right up to 30. Right? At 30, Jesus would emerge from the Jordan, baptized by John. And the Heavenly Father will say, You are my son in whom I am. Well, please, that's divine father, divine sonship. But to get Jesus to that place, Jesus had to submit to the tutelage of Joseph and Mary, spiritual fathers, for 30 years before that event. Right? But you don't read much of Joseph. Hmm? He's like the silent father in the life of the Son of God. For me, that's powerful because he, the father, is unseen. Yet he's critical to the process. Joseph would have taught Jesus the Torah. Like every good Jewish father would have taught his Jewish son. Joseph would have installed the scriptures into the life and mind of his son. In fact, in Luke 2 it says, Jesus subjected himself to Joseph. The word subject means to put one's life into proper order. Joseph put Jesus' life into proper order. Proper arrangement. Yet he is not put forth in the scriptures as any great man. For me he is the true foundation. Eh? You know true fathers always inv remain invisible. But their sons are seen. Jesus said, Thomas said, show us the father. He said, you've seen me. You've seen the... You've seen the Father. Fathers immortalize themselves in the lives of their sons. True good fathers will build into the life of the son. So that when the son fulfills purpose and destiny, inadvertently they are showcasing 
the father who chooses to remain in invisibility. No foundation is seen, yet foundations are critical to uphold everything that is built upon it. True fathers don't take glory for themselves. Do you ever see the foundation streaming out from the ground? I'm holding all of this up. You know when you come and admire the house, no one cares a hoot about the foundation. You're admiring, oh look at lovely walls, look at, the, look at, look at everything. But no one, no one goes to any house and says, wow, what mighty foundations are holding all of this up. You know? Yet the foundation is critical to upholding everything else up. Fathers are foundational. That's why I often say, no true father desires a place of prominence. If you know who you are, you see yourself as being under everything, but upholding all things. You get some men of God who choose to lord over God's vineyard. Yes, it is an ascended position because we lead people. But in the heart, attitude and mind, we regard ourselves as humble and lowly. And we regard ourselves as foundational, the substructure fueling and holding up the purposes of God in the lives of people. So true fathers are really there to serve. We are here to serve you. To serve the purposes of God in, in you. Amen? So fathers are foundational to everything. So we should flip that whole thing upside down. Put fathers right at the bottom. And sons at the top. Amen? Now, let's go on. I want to talk about the father-son covenant. I want to talk about, quickly, the covenant between Ruth and Naomi. Ruth chapter 1 and verse 9, listen to this carefully. He says, May the Lord grant that you might find rest. This is Naomi speaking to each of the daughters-in-law. Orpah and Ruth. May you find what? Rest. In the house of her husband. She's trying to encourage the girls to go back to Moab and to find new husbands. So may you find rest. A true father will always want to bring the son into a place of rest. Into a place of, of rest. Ruth 3.1 Naomi, the, uh, her mother-in-law said to her, Ruth, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you. Any true father wants to bring all his sons to a place of rest and security. Right? And Naomi models this very well for us. She consistently guides Ruth, the son, to a place where she prefers the son to herself. Do you know that it should have been Naomi that should have married Boaz. Elimelech and Boaz were contemporaries. Ruth was a young girl that married an, a Bali. <laughs> Bali Boaz. <laughs> right? Naomi gave up her rights of redemption, preferring the son, guiding the son, pushing the son forward.
her land. Naomi's land was redeemed. And Boaz would marry Ruth. It's so interchangeable because Ruth's son also acts self-sacrificially. In fact, one time you have not chased after the young men, but you've kept yourself. Right? The kindness you show to me, he says, is even greater than the kindness you've shown to your mother-in-law. Ruth knew that if I marry Boaz, the son born to me would not be mine. It would belong to Naomi. Based on the the Leverite Levitical laws governing the death of husbands in that day. So she would produce this, and that's why when Obed was born, on whose lap is the boy placed? It's not placed on, on Ruth's lap. The boy is placed on Naomi's lap. Every true son will endeavor to produce something that even he knows could not be accredited to himself, but the credit has to go to the father. But he does it, because that's an earthly economy. But in the genealogical record of Jesus, Obed, in, the, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' line is, is traced. Obed is accredited to Ruth there. From heaven's perspective, Heaven records the value and the work that the son did in his time. But the son can work with no ulterior motives that I need to reap glory upon myself so long as I fulfill the vision of the Father. Even if it's not accredited to me in this life, heaven's records, there is a record that God is keeping. That's why sons can work self-sacrificially in honor and support of their fathers having no accolade in this life, but having a registry in the heavens that I contributed in a significant way. From the father's perspective, the father will always want to bring the son into into rest. Now, everyone say rest. Let me relate just quickly before we go there. Important you understand this. You know this passage. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. That's verse 28. There are two rests spoken of here. One in verse 28 and one in verse 29. In verse 29 it says, Take my yoke upon you and do what? Learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will do what? Find rest for your soul. So in verse 28, rest is received. But in verse 29, rest is found. Can you see that? Let's make the comparison. Verse 28, all you need to do, the requirement to receive rest. Jesus said, just, just come to me. Everyone say, come to me. Come to me and receive. Right? But in verse 29, he says, you need to learn of me to find rest. There's two different kinds of rest. If you simply come to him, you will receive rest. 
Right? But if you now, after having come, start to learn His principles, you will find rest. Another dimension of rest for your souls. Who gives it? In verse 28. The person of Christ. Not so? In verse 29, what causes you to find the rest for your soul? The principles of Christ. You see, the person of Christ can give you rest simply because you've come. That's initial salvation. But once for you to maintain and find more rest, the person of Christ saved you. But the principles of Christ will make you successful. If you can come into salvation having found rest, but if you don't live a life of obedience to biblical principles, you will not live a successful life even though being saved. Hmm? So, this is another comparison. It says in verse 28, it says, I will give you, but in verse 29 it says, you will find. Now tell your neighbor, there's a rest that you must search for. Come on, tell someone next to you. There's a rest that you must find. You're still going to just be, give me, give me, give me, give me all the time. You've got to position your life. You see, when you come into salvation, the person of Christ will save you. But the principles of Christ will make you successful. There's stuff that you get simply because you said yes to God, I receive you as Lord and Savior. But once saved, if you violate the principles governing your salvation, there's a rest that will always escape you. Right? Now it says further, uh, you see in verse 28, Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you. That's a rest for your spirit. You are spirit, soul and, and body. That's initial salvation. But the rest in verse 29 is a rest for the, the soul, the mind, the will and the emotions. And that rest is an expression of your progressive salvation in the Lord. I believe when Ruth connected to Naomi, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. They left Moab and they came to Bethlehem of Judah. Now it's a different economy. Now to access the rest for your soul, Ruth, you're going to have to learn principles. You see, there was laws governing um, if a man would die, the nearest surviving kinsman or relative was obligated to marry the surviving spouse. Right? In order to perpetuate the name of the man and preserve his legacy. So the man marrying, even he has to be self-sacrificial because in marrying the surviving spouse and producing an offspring he knew that he would have no claim to having fathered that child the child would have been accorded as the son of the deceased husband or father that you call the Leverite law but to do that you had to have bought if the land was in jeopardy of resale you have had to, at your own cost, have bought the land of the deceased husband. None of your natural children could ever lay claim to that inheritance. 
So everything now that Boaz is doing is totally self-sacrificial. In fact, he wasn't the nearest surviving, surviving kinsman. Remember the other guy was before him? And that guy, when he came to the cross, he said, No way, Jose. Am I going to marry this girl? And he even said, If I marry her, I jeopardize my own inheritance. Right? Now, that, everyone say principles. There's all the principles governing the order of arrangement of life in that culture. Ruth must be aware that for me to be successful in that environment, I have to learn the principles and obey the principles that are designed to be Prayer won't work there. Principles will work. Sometimes we pray blue and black when we can just obey one principle and get the result. Hey? You can stand in front of an automatic door that just opens. And you can stand at a distance and say, Hukarabashindarababanda. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command thee, open up. And you can pray and fast there for 40 days and nothing will happen. All it requires is accurate positioning. In front of the sensor, and zoop, automatic doors open. Sometimes, prayer is not necessary. It's accurate posturing and positioning by obeying a principle that will get the result. Ruth realizes this. Naomi realizes, girl, if you are going to find security, and if I'm going to bring you into rest, redemption, where your whole life, every aspect of your life, will be completely redeemed. Everything I tell you from now onwards, you will do. Go glean in the fields. She comes back, she says, this guy's name is Boaz. Naomi then says to her, stay in that field. Don't leave that field, Naomi, because you have entered a realm of obedience to a law or principle in this domain of the kingdom, if which you follow through to the end, you will be completely redeemed. Everyone say obedience to principles. That's why some people don't like spiritual fathering, because a true spiritual father will always bring you back to biblical principle. Will insist that in your life, you obey the principles of God's word that are designed to bring you to your breakthrough. And no one likes to be told anymore. People like the era of the judges where everybody does what is right in his own eyes. Amen? There's a rest that you are given, but there's a rest that you have to find because you have your observance too, to principle. Amen? Let me leave all of this out because of time. I want to go to even this time is just going to be taken up. I want to get to the covenant. Here's the covenant. Everyone say a sevenfold covenant. This is Ruth's sevenfold pledge, if you would, covenantal pledge of commitment to Naomi, her spiritual father. Ruth, who is better than seven sons, makes a sevenfold pledge of loyalty and commitment to Naomi. 
Ruth said in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Do not urge me to leave you. She's talking to Naomi. Naomi said, please go girls. Go to Moab. Find husbands so that you can get on with your life. There's nothing that I can offer you. But the person that can see, she sees something in this woman that she knows she needs to plug in. She doesn't see a Jacobness. She sees within all Naomi. He has an Israel dynamic that I need to get. Hold on. She says to her, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. And here she says, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. That's very strong, eh? You don't get this kind of loyalty today. Now, let's just have a look at it. I, 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 won't, I won't treat this in great depth, just quickly. All these statements are, have symbolic reference. She says, where you go, I will go. In other words, I will follow your patterns of movement. I will follow your migration, your growth, your upgrade, and movements in spiritual things. You see, we are always on a path of movement. Not so. If you stagnate in God, you must never ever plateau. You must always seek to grow in God. Amen? The Bible says we grow from glory to glory, from strength to, to faith to faith, it says. It's always from one position of strength to the next position of strength. I often say, if you, if you go from weakness to strength, that's not growth. Weakness to strength is restoration. Strength to strength is growth. To go from weakness to place of strength, you are simply being restored. But if while strong, you consolidate that strong position and go to the higher position of strength, that's spiritual growth. So tell your neighbor, go from strength to strength. And usually, listen, this is the order of things. Usually, usually. The protocol in the kingdom is that your spiritual father is usually always highly progressive in his pursuit of growth and to remain current with the demand of the Lord. He always should be an activating factor in your life. When you see his when you see his growth, it's always an activating, encouraging principle that you see in him that motivates you to follow close behind. So there's no lag. She is saying to Naomi, Naomi, I will track you. I will never let you out of my sight, like Elisha said to Elijah, spiritual father, spiritual son said to his spiritual father, I will never leave you out of my sight. I will track you. I won't follow from a distance. I will follow your teachings closely. So I'm always kept up to speed with the demand of the Lord in the Spirit. Right? Then, so Justin, they're going to be following more closely than ever before. <laughs> then she said this, where you lodge, I will, I will lodge. In other words, my relationship and commitment to you has a sense of permanency attached to it. I will dwell or abide within the same spiritual environment as you. The term lodge is interesting in the Hebrew. 
That's why I use the word permanent. The word lodge implies a place of permanency in dwelling. Right? So she's saying literally, my commitment, my relationship with you has a sense of permanency. The moment you commit as a son to a spiritual father, in your heart there is still a back door open in case you need to bolt. You've already come into the relationship having no 100% commitment. But you must lodge. Everyone say lodge. Lodge. Don't dodge. Lodge. (laughs) Don't duck and dive. Meetings called you there. Calls you to do something. You're 110% committed. Um, There's fervency. There's passion. You're not a church member anymore. You're a spiritual son to a spiritual father carrying destiny. Purposes of God are at stake. Nothing that I would not do in terms of sacrifice to get the purposes of God done in our context. Amen? It's a deep level. It's not for everybody. But if you're up to it, there's great blessing in this for you. Tremendous blessing. Your people will be... You must remember, what was she by nationality? A Moabite. All she knew was Moabites. Right? She's saying literally, I'm now to, ready to embrace the Israelites. You know, this was a daring act. Eh? Even to move cities in our context takes a lot. You leave a known sphere, a comfort zone, right? And you go to a new context, you need to establish a whole new social circle. That's, it's, it can be quite traumatic. Traumatic moving cities, but in that culture, moving nations, was even more traumatic. It was even more traumatic because the Moabites were enemies of the Israelites. Hmm? It was even more traumatic because I didn't even know whether she knew the law, but there's a law in Deuteronomy that says, God said, no Moabite, no Moabite, no Ammonite will ever stand before the assembly of God's people. Yet this girl... She says, this, um, if I obey to my death, then let it be. But I'm committing. I'm committing. Do you know Ruth is in Jesus' genealogical record in Matthew chapter 2? Her name is in there. Only two women's names are in there. All men, so-and-so beget, so-and-so, so. There's only Rahab and... Ruth, right? Both were alien to Israel. Hmm? It's amazing how God takes outcasts and makes them strategic. Amen? If God can do it for them, then surely you and I can play a vital role in the execution of His purposes. Not so? Isn't the grace of God amazing? I always read the story, that's an amazing grace of God. This woman was, was hopeless, Ruth was. If she hadn't made this commitment, it was life would have ended. Do you know, she's listed in the, gene, in the genealogical record of Jesus. Orpah chose not to follow Naomi with this covenant. And the Bible says Orpah went back to Moab and its gods. You never ever read of Orpah again. She goes into oblivion. She's marginalized to a place called Cursed. Herem. Ban of destruction. Marginalized. No memory of her in the earth. 
No registry as having contributed to the will of God in the heavens. Nothing. Now, who wants to live like that? And you know what Oprah's name means? Stiff-necked. What is stiff-neckedness? Rebellion. It's an indication of rebellion. Oprah is a rebellious son. Ruth is an obedient son. I want to encourage you to deal with rebellion. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, the Bible says. If you entertain in your heart, you will not be, play a strategic role in the unfolding of God's purposes. Amen? It's very important. So your people will be my people. Your associations, friends, become mine as well. Ruth chose to sever all sentimental ties with her own people of Moab and embrace a whole new sphere of relationships. I thank God for my spiritual father. You know why? In terms of this aspect. When I connected with him covenantly in loyal commitment, my connection to him brought me up into a whole new range of friends, colleagues, associations, not just here in South Africa, but globally. There is no place literally on the earth that I cannot go without having known people. For me, it's purely because of my connection to Thamo Naidu. Amen? You know, uh, a few years ago, they bombed uh, Jomo Kenyatta Airport. Not bombed, the, the, set the place on fire, remember? The fire at the airport. I was in Nairobi at that time. We were doing a conference, and I was scheduled to be back on that day. A friend of mine phoned me 6 in the morning in my hotel room. I pick up the phone. He says, aren't you, isn't, aren't you going home today? I said, yeah. He said, I don't think so. Have you seen the news? <laughs> TV on. I see this whole airport in flames. And it's the departure section of the international part of the airport that's in flames. He says, you're not going anywhere today. Right? So, I was in Kisi. So, I flew to Nairobi. SAA had cancelled all international flights for the next two or three days. Now, as you know what? My father has a friend in Nairobi. One or two calls, and I'm sorted. I felt like I was on holiday for three days. <laughs> Blessing, advantage came to me simply because of my connection to one man. Sometimes accurate spiritual connectivity will bring you into advantage with a whole new sphere of relationships that you would not have otherwise enjoyed. Amen? Amen? I said to you earlier, this church's sphere of relationships, just you specifically, your sphere of relationships is about to enlarge. Grace that you never ever thought you would touch, you would now start to touch. It's going to benefit you, and because it will benefit you, it will benefit the whole congregation. Amen? Your people will be my people. She's literally saying, your friends I'm willing to embrace. Your associations I'm willing to embrace. Amen? Then quickly, I know time is rushing, but we'll just do, just finish this. Your God will be my God. She's not just saying, I will serve the God of Israel, Yahweh, and not Chemosh, which is the God of the Moabites. She is literally saying this, I believe. The level of relationship that you have with God, I will enter into that as well. 
That standard that you enjoy with your God, I want that. She's not just saying, I want to serve the God of Israel. She says, Naomi, I've seen something in you. There's a quality and intimacy that you enjoy with Jehovah. I want that. Your God has got to be my God. I will aspire to the quality of relationship that you have with God. Do you know what Paul said to the Philippians? The Philippians sold financially into Paul's life consistently. Then he says this in chapter 3. Paul says to them, My God will supply your needs according to His riches in glory. What the Philippian church did, they tapped into a benefit that Paul enjoyed with his God. The quality of relationship. Paul did not say God will provide your needs according to His glory. Paul said, My God... He could have said God or our God, but he specifically references my God because of your faithful financial sowing to me, Philippians. He says in chapter 1, from the first day in the gospel, even up to now, you became partakers of the grace of God in me by consistently sending me financial gifts. And he gives them a promise. He says, because of that, my God will supply your needs. It is possible for spiritual sons to tap into the blessing, advantage, and benefits that the spiritual father enjoys by virtue of his relationship with God. When she says, your God will be my God, she's saying, I want the standard of relationship that you enjoy with God. I want that. Amen? And then, Where you die, I will die. Please don't get too concerned. (laughs) I believe this is allegorical. She's literally saying, in the areas where, of your life, where I see that you are dead to self, sin, temptation, in those domains, I will also be dead. Called to be dead to sin. Dead to self. She's saying, I see... How you are dead, even to ambition. Because really, she prefers Ruth above herself. Right? Where you die, where? Everyone say where? Those areas of of your life where you are dead to sin, dead to temptation, allurement. Um, She says, I want in those same domains to be dead. Where you die, I die. Right? Then, she says... Where you are buried, I will be buried. Now, obviously, Naomi would have been buried if she died in Bethlehem of Judah. What she's saying, your physical death will not in any way be an opportunity for me to return to Moab. The land and the context that despises everything you stand for. You see, Moab despises the need for fathering. She's saying, where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I will be buried. So she's saying, when you depart and you're buried in Bethlehem of Judah, your death and you're buried, your, 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 the fact that you're buried will not in any way be a temptation for me to revert back now to a former position that is antagonistic to everything you stand for. But even past your life, 
I will still be faithful to the principles that you taught me. You don't have to be physically present, but I will still nevertheless obey. You know, some people can only serve God under supervision. When somebody's watching, but you take the oversight away, you see the, the, the worth of the man. This is saying, I want this relationship to benefit me so much that in your absence, I will still be faithful to the laws of your God. Right? My decision is final. I will not come to rest in any other context that the will of God for your life does not allow. Right? Very, very important. Only death will separate us. This sounds like a marriage, eh? <laughs> Only death will separate us. In other words, she's saying, my decision and sonship toward you is irrevocable and enduring to the very end. Right? It's a very, very strong, extremely strong covenantal commitment in relationship. And we hardly see this today. I'm going to end there because of time. We want you back tomorrow morning. <laughs> Amen. Paul and Timothy is a powerful example of spiritual fathering and sonship too. Timothy was Paul's son in the Paul's son in the Lord. Paul felt very strongly about him. So did Timothy feel about Paul. The relationship was solid. It was highly, highly covenantal. The will of God vested in Paul would be continued in the life of, of Timothy. Literally, there was a passing on of the baton. Right? And I want to encourage you. God's purposes for any context will only be built in and through the principle of fathers and sons. The will of God thrives and is preserved within this wineskin of fathering and, and sonship. Don't negate and disesteem what starts in smallness. It's a small domestic dwelling unit in Bethlehem of Judah, the story of Ruth, but it has global ramifications. What starts, I, I like to say, everything big always starts in a manger. Even the son himself was born in a manger. So you never discount the days of small beginnings. And I want to encourage you. God will do great things in and among you. But I call this church tonight to a place of, of greater commitment even to your spiritual fathers in the Lord. Be the best sons you could ever be. Not unto men. This is not unto men. This is unto, unto God. Even in instances when you're called to sacrifice, give support, make commitments, bear in mind that even though in this earth no accolades will be appended to your name, in fact your contributions might not even be recognized here on earth, but in the heavens there's another record and a regard from God that you will receive. Well done, my good and faithful servant in whom I am in whom I am well pleased. So I pray that um, you, would, you would come to this place of covenantal commitments. When you have a man of God that is true in your midst, 
One that is honorable. One who has been made by God. I will make you a father. One has gone through the processes of the dealings and the preparations of God with him. And he's come to maturity and God has placed him over you. May the Lord open your eyes to see, not the Jacob, but the Israel in the man. So when he speaks, he can inform you of things that will come upon you in the last days. Configure your destiny and your life. Live in a culture of, of, of mutual support and mutual honor. Let the purposes of God thrive. Come to a place of total redemption, where like Ruth, you can beg in the field one day, but you can own the field the next day. Right? You can be unhusbanded one day and be husbanded the next. You can be barren with no children and produce one of the greatest boys the gift uh, the earth has ever known. Pauper one day, multi-millionaires next. No genealogical record in chapter 1 engrafted into the, in the, into the genealogy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 2. Everyone say there is a record that God observes. I don't know about you, but before I die, it must be said of me, from heaven's perspective, not from man's perspective, that Randolph played a significant part in the unfolding nature of my purposes for the earth. I want to be in the record. Ask your neighbor, do you want to be in heaven's record? Nothing more, you know, in, in, really speaking, nothing matters to me more than this. That if God has something to do on the earth, my heart is God, I want to be a part of it. If you, are, if you have chosen to work within the economy of fathers and sons, then Father, I want to buy in. Not for myself, just so that your purposes can thrive on the earth. My spiritual father, uh, three years ago, left Peter Marisburg to start a church in Santa, Johannesburg. Because of my commitment, I said to my local church, would you release me for two months? I will not be at church on a Sunday for two months. I need to fly up every week just to give active support to what God has placed on His heart. Because the church knew my stance in reference to fathering and sonship, they gladly said, no, by all means, our elders fill in the gap in terms of ministry, but every week I would fly at my own expense from Durban to Santon, arrive there, help with the worship set up, and the church started to get going. Amen? Great blessing has come my way because of that. I don't do it for the blessing. I do it simply. There's a purpose that God has for that city. That purpose is being stewarded by my spiritual father in the Lord. I will do everything in my power as his son in the Lord to fuel and to wash his hands like Elisha washed Elijah's hands, symbolically in the spirit, prepare his hands for the execution of purpose. Small, small way, I demonstrated sacrificial commitment. Right? He's now the founder of Gate Ministries, Santon. That's nearing almost 400 members, sons, strong. Affecting matters in the earth on a global scale. 
Some of you must come to the conference with Justin next year. There. You will see what I'm talking about. Right? And if I can play a small role in facilitating and fueling things, then by all means, I want to position myself as a better than seven son. That's my desire. Tell your neighbor you are better than seven. So next time you come, tomorrow when you come to church, say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven rows, that's mine. <laughs> I'm one person, but when I'm here, it's like there's eight of me or more. That's my representation in the house. Amen? I told you, we don't, we're no longer counting people at the door, we're going to weigh you now. What do you represent? What is your stature? What kind of commitment do you come with to the house? Right? Are you willing to obey even unto your death? Are you willing to make the ultimate sacrifice such that nothing will be even credited to you, but from heaven's perspective, you would have contributed to God's global purposes? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you've spoken to us. I pray great blessing upon Justin, Reddy, and this house. I pray, Father, that your purposes will thrive here. I thank you for the kernel of sincerity that I perceive, of support, of genuine servanthood that is already present here. I thank you for the principle of honor that they have. And so, Father, I ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would simply consolidate and accentuate this for your glory and for your honor. And when we look back over the years from now, and we see what you have done. And the more sons you will raise up, not just here locally, but even globally, to this ministry. We will stand back and give you glory. Saying it was all worth it. So long as at the end of the day, the will of our Heavenly Father is done in the earth. That's our ultimate ambition, our ultimate objective. Not my will, but thy will be done, O God. Amen.